standing on the platform of truth. Pioneer Health and Missions. Before I start with the message this morning, I would like to do a promo for um, PHM video that we saw last night by Mike Casey. And I would highly recommend it. It was about the seven churches. And I don't want to do a spoiler alert on that, but watch it all the way to the end. What I learned is that um, I have been mislabeling some things in the, se- in the seven churches. And I was very impressed with the, um, the documentation, the inspiration they had um, to back up everything uh, that was said. And I learned, I learned a lot. I was so impressed. I watched it a second time, opened my Bible, and wrote it all in the leaf of my Bible, which you know how important that is to us, right? (laughs) But I didn't want to forget any of it. Um, So what I'd like to share today is a very sweet, sweet story to all of us. It's one that should never grow old in our experience with Christ. It has to do with our personal redemption with Jesus Christ. And in a season that we're in when um, there's lots of thanksgiving, uh, there's reflection, there's an emphasis on all of the blessings that we have in this country particularly, I think we, I find myself wanting to give ample time to um, recognize our personal walk with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, because I find it the most inspiring eternal topic. And I'm sure that many of you would agree with me. I'm going to uh, kneel for prayer, and then we'll start our message. Our loving Father, Lord, we humble ourselves before you. Precious Jesus, we ask that you would grant this message clarity, and in its simplicity, Lord, I pray that um, your great love and interaction with us that is so profound will shine through. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So the message was brought to me um, anew in my heart and my mind through study with the young people. We're reading Patriarchs and Prophets, and... um, I would like to begin with a quote that Brother Nick brought to our attention a couple weeks ago. We're going to set a little bit of a foundation here before, as we get into the message. So in Great Controversy, it comes from the chapter entitled, Character and Aims of the Papacy, and it reads as follows. What they, in parentheses, is going to be a little definition from me, and if it's in italicis, it, that's my emphasis. So sometimes I look up words just to get more from what we're, uh, what we're talking about. What they, the papacy, desire is a method of forgetting God, which shall pass as a method of remembering him. The papacy is well adapted to meet the wants of all of these. It is prepared for two classes of mankind, embracing nearly the whole world, those who would be saved by their merits and those who would be saved in their sins. 
Here is the secret of its power. So in this quote, let me ask you a question. It's power. Is this the power of grace unto salvation? Or is this the power of deception that's being spoken of? Power of deception unto death, correct. So understanding then that neither of these paths mentioned lead to salvation, saved by merit or saved in our sin, what element is present in both of them that make them false gospels? Can you think of a one-word answer? In one word, who has not been overcome or subdued in these false gospels? Self. Self is alive and well in both scenarios. Both have elements of conviction, some repentance as um, exhibited by my works, my faith in the sacrifice of Christ, but neither comes close to submitting to the Father's will, having the mind of Christ, the hope of glory. So if repentance is a turning away, would you agree with me that it must be a full turn, a full turning away? If I turn to miss a vehicle in my path, but I only turn partly, I don't fully turn to get out of its path. Am I going to experience a crash and a collision? Yes. But as always, we should confirm this with scripture to make sure we're on the right path. There are many many, uh, scriptures to bear witness to this, but I chose Romans and the words of Paul. The first one being 320. Because by works of law, not one of all flesh will be justified before him. For through law is full knowledge of sin. So this confirms that we're not saved or justified by works or commandment keeping. So are we saved or justified by his death alone? We're going to look at Romans again. Much more then, being justified by his blood... We shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So it's his life and his death, correct? And furthermore, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Inspiration further clarifies the salvational and redemptive message with this quote from Signs of the Times. While we are admonished, which means warned, advised, instructed, pretty strong words, we are not to think that we can merit salvation by our good works. Salvation is the free gift of God, and it is to be received by faith. It is provided for the repentant soul by Christ through the great plan of redemption. But the proof of our love to him, the evidence of our faith, 
will be found in our obedience to God's holy law. Our Savior says, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. Christ enjoins to order or to direct with an urgency. Christ enjoins upon us the keeping of the commandments because he knows that in keeping them, there is great reward. The revealing of a character, our character, after the divine similitude, the character of the Father and Son. So I think we can agree that we have defined the plan of redemption using inspired writings as well as having exposed the false. Both of the false methodologies keep the Father and the Son at a distance. They limit their interaction and their influence in our lives. They keep redemption as rather a sterile process, minimizing unwanted disruption in our lives, leaving control in our daily grasp, and we're, humanity is comfortable with that. I can plan my works, I can lean on my faith, but what does our personal redemption really look like then, according to the Bible? And there's many examples throughout the Bible, but I was impressed this last month with a very graphic example, which is the redemption of Jacob. Jacob, thoughtful, diligent, and caretaking, ever thinking more of the future than the present, was content to dwell at home. Occupied in the care of the flocks and the tillage of the soil, his patient perseverance, thrift, and foresight were valued by the mother. His affections were deep and strong, and his gentle, unremitting attentions added far more to her happiness than did the boisterous and occasional kindnesses of Esau. I like Jacob, don't you? <laughs> Inspiration also tells us that Jacob was taught of the promises that were made to Abraham and were passed on by his father Isaac. With secret longing, he listened to all that his father told concerning the spiritual birthright. He carefully treasured what he had learned from his mother. Day and night, the, uh, the subject occupied his thoughts until it became the absorbing interest of his life. But while he was thus esteemed eternal, but while he thus esteemed eternal above temporal blessings, Jacob had not an experimental knowledge of the God whom he revered. So Jacob had a good start on life. Some of us do, others don't. But more importantly, without the personal experience with God, we are all vulnerable to the same outcome. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Most are familiar with the events of Jacob's life to follow. He's tempted by his mother to secure the birthright through deception, his scruples were overborne, and he obtained by fraud the coveted blessing. That's from Patriarchs and Prophets. So threatened by the anger of his brother, 
Esau, and fearing death at his hand, Jacob had to leave his father's house. Even so, Isaac had renewed the covenant promise, and as its inheritor, Jacob was to seek a wife from his mother's family. And thus he began his journey. The second evening, or the, excuse me, the evening of the second day found him far away from his father's tents. He felt that he was an outcast, and he knew that all this trouble had been brought upon him by his own wrong course. The darkness of despair pressed upon his soul, and he hardly dared to pray. He had lost all confidence in himself, and he feared that the God of his fathers had cast him off. But God did not forsake Jacob. His mercy was still extended to his erring, distressful servant. The Lord compassionately revealed just what Jacob needed, a savior. The Lord came to Jacob in a dream, revealing himself as his mediator through the symbol of a ladder. One hand in heaven, one hand extended to the earth, bridging the gulf that sin had caused so that Christ and the ministering angels could have communion with man. All this was revealed to Jacob in his dream. Although his mind at once grasped a part of the revelation, its great and mysterious truths were the study of his lifetime and unfolded to his understanding more and more. I find that very encouraging when we don't get it the first time. (laughs) So Jacob awoke from this dream with a new direction, a new purpose. His life, his journey from that point was not without trial or tribulation, but a change had overcome him. He was leaning on the promise. Jacob spends 20 years as a fugitive from his father's household dutifully marrying as his father had instructed, though this was a struggle as well, if we remember the story, being deceived by Laban in marriage to Leah, continuing to serve seven more years to wed his beloved Rachel. Through all this, Jacob honored God by providing diligent and faithful servant to, uh, service to Laban, and he showed compassion to Leah, Even though he couldn't really trust her, he fulfilled his obligation to her. God brought prosperity to him as he attended to the seemingly small duties of life. But as the unfair practices of Laban increased and the threat of envy and revenge from Laban's household fomented, Jacob was given divine direction to leave and return to his father's household. His sin in the deception of his father was ever before him. He knew that his long exile was the direct result of that sin, and he pondered over these things day and night, the reproaches of an accusing conscience making his journey very sad. As the hills of his native land appeared before him in the distance, the heart of the patriarch was deeply moved. All the past rose vividly before him. With the memory of his sin came also the thought of God's favor toward him and the promises of divine help and guidance. 
This chapter in Patriarch and Prophets is entitled The Night of Wrestling. As we recall the events, Jacob separates from his dear ones. He wants to spend the night in prayer. He's restless. He's convicted of his past sin. He's fearful for the future and the immediate danger that he's put his family in by bringing them across on this journey to meet what he supposes is going to be a very angry family. So the following excerpt most people have read, maybe more than once. But as I read it in the last month, I read it for the first time. And I would entreat you to listen again as though you're hearing it for the first time. It won't be on the slide. It's rather lengthy. With earnest cries and tears, he made his prayer before God. Suddenly, a strong hand was laid upon him. He thought that an enemy was seeking his life, and he endeavored to wrest himself from the grasp of his assailant. In the darkness, the two struggled for the mastery. Not a word was spoken, but Jacob put forth all his strength and did not relax his efforts for a moment. While he was thus battling for his life, the sense of his guilt pressed upon his soul. His sins rose up before him to shut him out from God. But in his terrible extremity, he remembered God's promises, and his whole heart went out in entreaty for his mercy. The struggle continued until near the break of day, when the stranger placed his finger upon Jacob's thigh, and he was crippled instantly. The patriarch now discerned the character of his antagonist. He knew that he had been in conflict with a heavenly messenger. And this was why his almost superhuman effort had not gained the victory. It was Christ, the angel of the covenant, who had revealed himself to Jacob. The patriarch was now disabled and suffering the keenest pain, but he would not loosen his hold. All penitent and broken, he clung to the angel. He wept and made supplication, pleading for a blessing. He must have assurance that his sin was pardoned. Physical pain was not sufficient to divert his mind from this object. His determination grew stronger, his faith more earnest and persevering, until the very last. The angel tried to release himself. He urged, let me go for the day breaketh. But Jacob answered, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. Had this been a boastful, presumptuous confidence, Jacob would have been instantly destroyed. But his was the assurance of one who confesses his own unworthiness, yet trusts the faithfulness of a covenant-keeping God. This, my dear brothers and sisters, is the story of our personal redemption. This is our experimental knowledge of the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, necessary to bring about a sanctified life. The Lord brings true conviction upon us. We don't bring it upon ourselves. But He doesn't abandon us there. He shows us the way unto repentance through salvation. He asks us to choose. Then He provides the grace, the faith, the victory over temptation, Direction in our lives to the extent that we obey, and mercy 
if we fall. The above scene is generally aligned with the end time events, the time of trouble to come. And I agree with that application. But I've also experienced this wrestling and have heard testimony from others that it's present in our daily walk as well. In order to prepare for this, we must first repent as conviction is brought to us. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Interestingly, inspiration tells us that if Jacob had not previously repented of his sin before this incident occurred earlier in his life, if he had not repented, um, God could not have heard his prayer, could not have mercifully preserved his life in this struggle that he had with him. Such will be the experience of God's people in their final struggle with the powers of evil. God will test their faith their perseverance, their confidence in his power to deliver them. Jacob prevailed because he was persevering and determined. His experience testifies to the power of importunate, which means pressing or urgent, prayer. It is now that we are to learn this lesson of prevailing, superior in power, having more influence, prevailing power of unyielding faith. The greatest victories to the Church of Christ or the individual Christian are not those that are gained by talent, by education, by wealth, or the favor of men. They are those victories that are gained in the audience chamber with God when earnest, agonizing faith lay hold upon the mighty arm of God. Unlike man's gospel version, this is personal. This is disrupting. It means letting go of ourself. Allowing ourselves to be disabled. Inserting God's will and making it our own desire. It's messy. It's emotional at times. And it's a struggle of utmost intensity and it does not garner the favor of men. But it's paramount to our personal redemption and affords us an experimental testimony to share with others. It's our passport that entitles us to be part of God's remnant. It's our permission to be the people of the three angels' message. It's our inheritance, our birthright. So let us not shy away from the wrestling it's a daily battle, a daily choice. Was Jacob's life a better roses after this experience? His polygamous marriage made his home life almost unbearable. It was a constant struggle. He had challenges with his children. He lost his favorite son. He experienced a famine. He had to leave his home and move to Egypt. His battle continued until he died. But I like where his heart was in the end through all of this. Esau had despised the blessings of the covenant. 
he had valued temporal above spiritual good, and he had received that which he desired. It was by his own deliberate choice that he was separated from the people of God. Jacob had chosen the inheritance of faith. He had endeavored to obtain it by craft, treachery, and falsehood. But God had permitted his sin to work out its correction. Yet through all the bitter experience of his later years, Jacob had never swerved from his purpose or renounced his choice. He had learned that in resorting to human skill and craft to secure the blessing, he had been warring against God. From that night of wrestling beside the Jabbok, Jacob had come forth a different man. Self-confidence had been uprooted. Henceforth, the early cunning was no longer seen. In place of craft and deception, his life was marked by simplicity and truth. He had learned the lesson of simple reliance upon the almighty arm. So whatever our struggles are, the conviction that God brings to us of traits, habits, activities that we need to be free of, Let's be persevering and importunate in our prayers, and God will bring victory. Remember your own wrestling match and how the Almighty Hand had to disable you, replacing it with a Savior and the power of His grace. My desire is that we take this season to remember how God has saved us, His great love and mercy in redeeming, repurchases, repurchasing us from the hand of death dedicating anew to acknowledging him in every part of our life. Rejoice in the great love and mercy of our Heavenly Father and his Son, for they have truly provided all. In closing, I'd like to repeat the words of Paul, words from a friend to his friends. He wrote these words while he was in prison. He didn't know what the next day would bring. So let's hear this message as his friends, brothers in Christ. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Shall we pray? Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would bring to our minds and our hearts the full remembrance of our first love, of the wrestling match, Lord, that we had with you, and how you came to us, showed us the way. It wasn't always painless. Father, we look back and we regret none of it. We regret nothing that we have left behind, only that we have looking forward. 
through your promises, through your great angel of the covenant. We ask a blessing that we might never let you go. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Standing on the Platform of Truth Pioneer Health and Missions